Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to April's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. So coming up, we've got an interview with Rodney Hooper from RK Equity. RK provides uh, proprietary research and capital markets advice in the battery materials space. And Rodney's a longtime expert who's written extensively on lithium stocks and is also co-host of the Lithium Iron Rocks podcast and the Rock Stock channel. Before that, I'd like to welcome my co-host, Cormac O'Leary. Cormac is MD of Electrios Energy and an expert on the Chinese battery space. Welcome, Cormac. Thanks, Matt. Great to be back again. Good to chat. And as always, lots to talk about this month. So um, do you want to kick off with just some takeaways? From well, I'm just going to tell you what's been happening in China over March. Uh, you know, there's been a couple of distinct themes. Again, the CATL have been moving up and down this supply chain, securing raw materials, cathode material supply, and even moving further downstream to uh, the data management and artificial intelligence. CATL are making moves in all parts of the supply chain. Then we have um, lithium carbonate. It's been a big uh, feature uh, during um, March. Uh, A lot of developments in uh, lithium carbonate production, planned production, as opposed to... um, extra produced during March. Then artificial graphite seems to be making a bit of a comeback this year. I know you uh, have an interest in that sector. Yeah. Again, being a bumper year for lithium iron phosphate, it's up almost taking up 50% of the EV, or sorry, uh, batteries produced during March you know, for, in China. And pouch cells also are making a bit of a comeback. We see that with the uh, latest tech coming out of Pharisis, where they've... Uh, Achieve 330 watt hours per kilogram with a uh, pouch style cell. And that I think that's a ternary yeah. chemistry. Well, 330 watt hour per kilogram. They haven't mentioned what the chemistry is, but I, be- I believe it's some sort of ternary, a layered oxide type chemistry. It seems that they've made an improvement in the anode side, which is they seem to be using, it hasn't been disclosed, but significant quantity of uh, silicon and uh, this uh, and, and uh, not for uh, capacity but they've been introducing carbon nanotubes on the anode side for um, increased conductivity and uh, especially when concerning silicon so um, okay. so i mean i think the yeah. silicon issue in anodes is a fascinating area and indeed in in this issue the april issue of battery materials review we did sort of go in and look at this issue of silicon I was going to say replacement, more sort of substitution for graphite, really helping increase the energy density of the anode beyond what graphite can do. And it's, a, it's an amazing area. And I think there's huge potential for expansion. Just a few things to be aware of. Increasing silicon does increase the energy density of the cell, but it also increases the cost of the anode in current formulation, certainly with current technology. And I think the other point just to make is I think a lot of people are suggesting, well, if you increase silicon, it's going to be negative for graphite. At the moment, that's not the case. I mean, the sort of silicon loadings, the max silicon loadings we're seeing in batteries at the moment, probably six or 7% with the potential to go up to 10, 15% in the midterm, maybe 20% in the longer term. 
in terms of the amount of graphite demand that that's going to sterilize, it's very limited. Yeah. So we've still got a very strong demand story for graphite. What I've noticed, you kind of hit on it there, is that there's two businesses here. It's not uh, it's not a one silicon anode. It, there's this graphite silicon composite anode, which there's different companies involved. So the big names like Sila Nano um, are involved in working towards a pure 100% silicon anode. But there's this other uh, part of the business, which is the companies that are just producing silicon uh, to be part of a composite electrode. There's sort of reasons behind that. And it's certainly the composite electrode where we see the, the most near-term potential just for sort of non-experts listening. The, the issue with silicon in batteries is that graphite hardly expands in volume at all when you put a current through it, whereas silicon expands, I think it's something like 300%, which obviously seriously impacts the structure of your battery. So up till now, the market has focused on sort of introducing small amounts of silicon to, to increase improve the properties in the battery. Pure silicon anodes, I think, are probably still some distance away. Would you agree? Yeah. The small amounts of silicon are, are introduced to make up for some of the shortcomings of uh, graphite, uh, you know, in terms of uh, SEI formation, solid uh, electron interface. Where, so you add 5%, 10% of silicon can make up for any capacities, or not any, but some of the capacity loss you observe during uh, cycling uh, graphite. You mentioned that we're at about 6 7%. It's more or less been stalled for the last five years, at least since they've been introducing graphite. It's, you know, in, in introduced at 5%. So it's not increased mm. that much over the last five years. But um, it's interesting because there's quite a lot of variability by battery, by product, and, and also regionally. I think some of the Chinese battery producers have pushed the envelope very strongly on silicon. There's been a lot of interesting work done. And interestingly, sort of in the in the US as well, I understand the Teslas are using something like six to seven percent silicon in their batteries at the moment. Whereas, you know, some vehicles it's one to two percent and uh, and some other vehicles that there's no silicon in there at all. So there's quite a lot of variability, I think. Yeah, definitely it's a bit of a uh Smoke, not smoke mirrors, but behind the curtain, everybody's doing something different. But yeah, as you mentioned, Tesla has been leading the way with Panasonic with a silicon uh, addition to uh, and the anode side for since they basically started the project together. And I mean, it is a, a fascinating area and, and certainly an area where I think there are some potentially easy wins in terms of energy density and chargeability of batteries in the sort of next three to five years potentially much easier than sort of going to a full solid state battery. I have some clients in the last 12 months or so who are particularly aiming at this market, this uh, 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20% silicon market. So making specific silicon just for the composite market. So this, I think uh, you had it in your your BMR recently uh, that you envisage this is the way it's going to go between now and 2030, just 5, 10, 15% additions over that time frame. So it's going to be interesting to see where we max out and decide to uh, switch completely to uh, silicon, if that's possible. The other question, and, and, and also very important point that came out of the VW Power Day, was this juxtaposition between artificial and sorry, artificial or synthetic and uh, natural graphite. And uh, I think that's a very, very interesting story as well, particularly from a demand, well, supply demand point of view, because 
it was clear from the power day that they're talking about 100% synthetic graphite anodes for their vehicles. And I was quite surprised by that because Volkswagen's made quite a song and dance about sustainability and using a product that is derived from a a dirty product straight away is derived from the petrochemical industry. And then on top of that, processed with a power and pressure intensive process in parts of the world which use very significant amounts of of hydrocarbons in power generation. I was quite surprised to see uh, Volkswagen go for that as, as a solution. Yeah, I mentioned this, this uh, BTO and um, Putali have announced uh, in China have announced two uh, artificial graphite projects that they plan to bring online in the next couple of years. So it's going to be, I think, 20, 20 kT annually for BTO and 35 Putali. That is kind of different to what we've been seeing the last few years. It seemed almost as if the market, market was shifting towards natural graphite, as you said. And now we see this year that the artificial graphite is the uh, theme on that side. And maybe it is, although it's quite uh, energy intensive, uh, maybe it's something we can, the manufacturers can bring up to scale more rapidly than a natural graphite mine. So I just wonder whether they can do it in the volumes needed. I don't personally don't believe they can do it in the volumes needed because it is such a power intensive business. And, you know, we're talking about the, the sort of graphite anode demand going up by what 20 odd times by 2030 and i just don't think you can add enough artificial graphite to keep even the current 50 50 relationship between synthetic and and natural graphite also don't forget that oil prices are going to go up so the cost of the raw material will go up as well and then obviously You've got improvements in the processing of of natural graphites over time. I just don't think there's any way that the synthetic graphite industry can keep up with that huge demand pool. The synthetic or artificial graphite for lithium-ion batteries is piggybacking on the graphite anode anode for electric arc furnaces in the steel industry, which you know is going to continue to grow and have this business of uh, an increased demand for needle coke, which you know is one of the primary materials used in uh, artificial graphite for lithium-ion batteries production. So, and you don't hear that uh, that many uh, natural graphite miners or processors coming online with battery grade, that means, you know, the, uh, the right spec, graphite size that is available for the battery industry. I don't, I, I don't think I've heard of more than one or two in the last number of years that, you know, new projects. In the Western world, there's quite a few coming on. I mean, particularly in northern part of North America, in Canada, in um, the Nordic region, in, in Scandinavia. There's actually also some interesting projects coming in in, uh, in Africa and in Australia, where we're starting to see, I would say, integrated projects. So not just natural flake projects, but natural flake projects with downstream anodizing capacity. So either for spherical graphite or coated spherical graphite, or even going as far as battery anode material. So I can count probably five or six graphite projects with substantial amounts of of capacity that could be coming into the market in the next three or four years. Now, obviously, they're greenfield deposits, so it's going to take them a while to ramp up and to hit spec and everything. But we're certainly seeing a lot more 
a very exciting integrated project coming in in the Western world over the next little while. So for me, I think there's going to be enough supply of naturally derived material, certainly for the for the near term. And then obviously if if prices go north, we'll start to see the, the next stage of, of integrated graphite projects coming to the market around about now, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, are the OEMs, auto OEMs involved in any of these projects? Are they getting as much support in the graphite side? I think yeah. probably a little bit less support on the graphite side than on the cathode side. We certainly see, you know, more activity by the OEMs on the cathode side of the business because I think the the shortages there are, are more recognised. Not enough activity, by the way, but but more activity. I mean, it, with occasionally we are seeing some activity in in the in the anode side. I know that some of the European OEMs have been active among some of the smaller miners in in Europe and North America. So we are seeing some activity, but for me, it's still not enough and it's not quickly enough. I'll get off my high horse because uh, we (laughs) talk about that quite a lot. Did you want to just talk a little bit about some takeaways from the Volkswagen Power Day? There's been a number of Power Days this year. So we have, in the last 12 months anyway, uh, Tesla, followed by NIO and Volkswagen and uh, GAC in China had a power slash battery day also. And um, I'm sure uh, some other automakers might uh, have a similar power slash battery day. Volkswagen, you know, it was uh, slightly different to what we saw from a Tesla. Tesla was, even though some people complained, was compared to Volkswagen, a lot more cell-focused Volkswagen are going to have a unified cell, but they haven't described is it what shape it is, where Tesla gave us exact dimensions, right? So we're able to back calculate the potential energy density and volumetric energy density of that cell. Volkswagen didn't go too far into the woods regarding what the future cathode material is going to be, only that uh, they are planning and introducing high manganese, which is not currently used in any significant quantities in the EV market. So they're, they're going to base the whole platform around high manganese, um, but they haven't said what type of, you know, there's a number of different uh, candidates for high manganese. And, you know, they haven't listed any partners. Who, who's the cathode company that they're going to rely on for the uh, high manganese? So it was a couple of different strategies. Volkswagen's, uh, you know, seem more focused on uh, their charging infrastructure, uh, where mm-hmm. Tesla didn't even go into it really during their battery day. Quite different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And I, I, the very interesting thing about Volkswagen as well is they sort of introduced this view of sort of um, battery chemistries being differentiated according to their market positioning of the vehicles. So you had sort of uh, entry-level vehicles potentially using LFP batteries and then the mass market using uh, the high manganese battery and then potentially the premium vehicles using the, the NCM chemistry. So I thought that was very interesting. And of course, we talked about the, the anode story. But synthetic, yeah. In terms of the level of detail given, was a bit of a, a triumph of, um, of spin over detail, I thought, in terms of the, the amount of actual information that they gave. Yeah. They're not really aiming this at the uh, battery community. They're trying to, maybe they're bored half the people tuning in if they went into two details. They just trying to get some momentum behind their conversion to 100% EV, right? So maybe it's a crowd pleaser, but uh, 
if you're looking to hear something new that's happening in the battery world, uh, other than high manganese, which no one else really had mentioned, uh, you know, it's a lot of cathode makers are dabbling in high manganese cathodes, uh, especially with cobalt falling out of, uh, of the equation or, or being pushed out. Um, for years, we we're just hearing about high nickel. So it's nice to, that they're bringing high manganese to the uh, forefront of the conversation. Yes, having, I mean, uh, them, them and Tesla both which is great if you're a high-purity manganese developer, of which I can count only three or four in the world. So it'd be right. quite interesting to see how easy it is for these guys to bring out these, uh, these high-manganese batteries when there's such a, um, a limited supply of the material. Anyway, we won't, uh, we won't go into that in, in major detail either. Maybe just worth talking a little bit about um, BYD because... You talked about how LFP batteries are making a real renaissance in in China, and BYD have recently announced that they're going to roll out their Blade battery in a model in Europe for the first time. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that goes in the European market because LFP is making a very big splash now in in I would say mass market vehicles in the in the Chinese market. And with VW saying that they're going to use LFP on their entry level models globally, I assume. One wonders when we're going to start to see some LFP battery capacity coming into Europe, because as yet, very, very limited. I I mean, I haven't seen a single battery factory announced in Europe that's going to be entirely LFP chemistry. Not a battery factory or LFP cathode material manufacturer. At the moment, the European EV market is primarily dominated by what I would call premium EVs. And I think if it's going to take off the way that the Chinese market has done, we need to find EVs coming into the market that would price at mass market levels. So, you know, that's 15 to 20,000 euros, 15 to 20,000 pounds with subsidy is kind of the mass market level. And we're not really seeing that at the moment in the European market. How much is that new Dacia retailing? So, at? so that comes in actually at that level. So that's coming in, right. I think, at around about fifteen thousand. So uh, we're keeping a very close eye on on that. I'm I'm quite excited about that as a product. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, we'll, I guess we'll see how we do. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see. I haven't seen any prices on the uh, BYD Blade battery, but I know the Hyundai are, are planning on using the BYD Blade battery for their Chinese EVs. So. Not in Korea or US, but so far in China is their plan. So it'll be interesting to see BYD Blade Battery make it into Europe. It'll be, it'll be your first international. You know, it's just barely been introduced to China. BYD themselves has been using it. And now Hyundai will be the first international customer but for Chinese domestic market. Yeah, I think the model that they're introducing in, in Europe is the Tang, which is the SUV, which is a, a larger vehicle, and I think it's it's going to retail at about seventy thousand US dollars a unit. So that compares with the the Han, which is the primary blade model in China, which is the third best selling electric vehicle in China in twenty twenty one, and that's got a thirty three thousand US dollar cost. So it'll be interesting to see. It's not really a mass market product in Europe. Yeah, it's a lot of money to pay for. Uh... BYD automobile. In the interest of time, let's head on. Interesting movement this month on consensus EV forecasts from the big investment banks. 
UBS had an interesting report out in March where they raised their EV penetration targets globally, which translated into a big upgrade in their raw materials demand forecasts. But it's interesting that there is such a differentiation between the most bullish of the investment banks and the least bullish. I think probably around the least bullish or most bearish is probably Goldman's. They raised their EV forecasts in March as well, but they're still well at the bottom end of consensus in terms of, of volumes. And of course, while you're forecasting you know, very low EV sales take up, that means you're forecasting very low battery materials demand growth. And uh, I think that's the issue that the industry has at the moment, because depending on whose forecasts you look at, you could see anywhere from a million tons per year of lithium carbonate equivalent demand in 2025 to six or 700,000 tons a year of LCE demand in 2025. And obviously, that makes quite a big difference to your supply-demand balance. And I think that's the issue that, that a lot of the industry is dealing with at the moment, that a lot of investment banks and consultants are way too low on their EV sales forecasts. Yeah. Well, everybody's got an EV sales forecast for 2030. Now, it depends. If you want to follow an investment banks, you could follow the automakers, you know, like Tesla forecast, somewhere around 30 to 40% of the global sales will be EVs, where some uh, investment banks are forecasting closer to 100%. So as you just mentioned, it's a wide spectrum. And to calculate volumes of materials used, also you need to know in 10 years' time, what is the size of the battery pack going to be? What the battery pack size is and also what the battery pack chemistry is. Exactly. I mean, obviously, we make an assumption on all of those things in our models. But if if you're, I mean, starting at the beginning, if your EV sales model is off, then you're the rest of your model is going to be a, a disaster straight away. It's been like that for a number of years. You know, uh, IEA's EV outlook has been much different to BNF's EV outlook. And so often you have to refer to both and uh, depending on the time of year uh, and the year, because this forecasting uh, as you are constantly up, there used to be just yearly updates, uh, but now it's uh, nearly every quarter, depending on uh, what's changing. But um, We certainly have been seeing, I mean, we have seen a significant increase in forecasts over the last 12 to 18 months. So I think the forecasts are now heading in in the right direction. But I think that a number of the people who are doing the forecasting do not have experience forecasting secular demand events. And as a result of that, they've got their near-term demand growth forecasts very, very low. And I would just go go hasten to say that they've got them wrong. This is my third secular demand event, and, and, and the, the nature of the growth curve is very different in a secular demand event to what a lot of these, these guys are forecasting. So I think um, go back and study a few other secular demand events before you uh, set your next let, set of uh, forecasts and uh, do yourselves a favor. Did anybody forecast close to 3 million or slightly over 3 million EV sales last year? No. Uh, I think it was slightly ahead, right? Of, uh, especially beginning of January 2020. Well, it, it depends when you forecast it. I mean, everybody yeah. took their forecast down in sort of March and then started to, to put them up again towards the end of the year. I think the closest was um, the European outfit EV Volumes. I think they came pretty close. A lot of other people were quite a long way out 
and a number of uh, commentators, even in mid-year, were still forecasting EV sales to be flat to down. So uh, I think the EV market is continually keeping analysts on their toes, as it indeed should be. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about some sort of investments. We saw some uh, a number of more mega factory investment details last month. But what really caught my eye actually was some quite significant moves on the separator side. We saw, I think, all of the top three in the separator market announcing fairly significant capacity additions in Europe and Asia. I think we have to say that that's a very, very positive move because one of the areas where we're not we haven't really seen capacity growth announcements has been in the sort of intermediate material space. Yeah. In China, they've been ramping up separator production plants for the last three years at least. Uh, with Simcorp Global are uh, very aggressive. I think they're the top separator manufacturer now. And uh, they're setting up in Europe as well, right? The um uh, they're going, and uh, Senior also, a uh, Chinese uh, separator manufacturer, investing close to 300 million euro in a site next to Nordfolk uh, in Sweden. And then Sweden, uh, yeah. the Koreans, yeah. as you just mentioned, uh, SKIE. And, um, uh, you know, that's a huge investment in separators. So, you know, uh, separators are another dark art, really, uh, as we've seen some of that litigation between SK and LG cameras regarding separator uh, IP. Um, but you know, there's a number of different types of separators. There's a number of different coating options. So there's not a ideal separator. There's not a chosen separator format, including the polypropylene pot, anything the plastic used, or the coating, or uh, you know, how thick the separator is. You know, the thinner, the better, obviously, but it comes with some problems. That you, know, you make it a which coating material to use? Are you going to use alumina or bromide? Or uh, is, uh, you can use silicon oxide as well. Uh, there's a number of other options. My uh, working with separators, there's no uh, actual, it's just like NMC, just like the cathode side, there's no, no actual uh, chosen separator uh, tech, so to speak, but they're all based yeah, around the plastic. What, what works with your battery. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, if you're a supplier like a Senior or a Semcorp, uh, you know, it's a little bit more difficult for SKIE. I'm sure they're going you know, to supply themselves and uh, other players in the market. But uh, there was no separator manufacturing going. Well, there, you know, Freudenberg and some other outfits in, 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 in Germany and, and Central Europe, but nothing on this kind of scale that really yeah. is required to bolster the EV industry in Europe. So it's good to see, but, you know, none of these are domestic European uh, operations. So, um, I mean, companies. I'm not too worried that it's not domestic European companies, but obviously we need to see the capacity going on if we're going to see integrated regional supply chains. Yeah. So, I mean, we, I think we're still quite light for anode capacity and cathode capacity yeah. and extremely light for raw materials capacity, but it's great to see some investments going on. I'm not going to say upstream, but midstream area in the battery supply chain. Yeah. I believe there are some European players interested in, in, in getting in the market also. plastic made. Uh, yeah, I think Lanxus made a, an acquisition. I think it's in the electrolyte space rather than in the um, separator space itself. But I think some of the European chemicals companies are interested in in sort of evolving into that area. Well, yeah. And uh, I think it's it's great. We yeah, need that's to see another example. We need uh, to see diversification. Lanxus, I think, are going to be making uh, Team Cheese electrolyte, Chinese manufacturer. 
Also, yeah. uh, the so uh, separator and the European uh, electrolytes are mostly going to be made by Asian companies again. We've seen a couple of GCHR go into Poland, um, big Chinese uh, electrolyte manufacturers, and uh, the Korean um, electrolyte manufacturers are already in, uh, in Poland and Hungary also. Yeah. Uh, Soulbrain yeah. and a couple of these players. Okay. And then we touched on it uh, there, and I suppose we should follow up on it because we did talk about it last month, the LG Chem and SK Innovation lawsuit. And great news, I think, for the whole of the industry that the two companies reached a, a settlement um, early yeah. this month, I think it must have been. Yeah. I think that's a great result for all involved. It, it's great for the US battery industry and the and EV industry. You know, it's great that they sort of agreed for all of their operations going forward, I think it will be good for Korea Inc. as well. Yeah, yeah, it just shows that, you know, we also in Europe will uh, have our fair share of Korean chemical manufacturers and battery manufacturers. Uh, they're already there, that this won't continue globally and you know, halt the uh, growth of the uh, batteries for EV industry because we need as much capacity as we can get online. SKI have broken ground in Georgia. They're very far along in the production of that plant. And other Korean chemical manufacturers, battery chemical manufacturers, set up uh, right next door in anticipation of uh, supplying uh, SKI. So there was a huge, you know, it's over a billion dollar US investment on SKI alone, let alone the chemical manufacturers. So um, there was huge investment, a lot of jobs on the line, and possibly stalling the US EV industry for a number of years because other than uh, Tesla Panasonic and then you have LG Chem, there's no, there's no other battery manufacturer of large scale battery manufacturer. There's obviously other battery manufacturers there, but uh, there's no, uh, as opposed to Europe, there's a uh, US seem to be happy to uh, get their batteries from uh, the Korean manufacturers setting up shop rather than having a you know, Georgia gigafactory, you know, Georgia, you know, no domestic startups, big, huge startups popping up around, which is yeah. quite different to what we see going on in Europe, right? Where it's British Volt and uh, Italia Volt now and all these startups. Maybe, maybe just a, a matter of time. I mean, we've, we've been hearing about the sort of focus on Europe for what, 18 months, two years. It's taken these domestic players to sort of come around. Maybe in sort of 12 to 18 months to two years, we'll start to see announcements from US companies um, building their own capacity in the US. That joint venture between GM and uh, LG Chem seems quite attractive. It looks like LG, um, LG, or sorry, GM might also build their own battery plant, similar yeah. to uh, Volkswagen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is the eternal, a big question that's been asked for years. Who's going to be making the batteries in the future or near future? The automakers? Looks like Tesla and Volkswagen have that plan. Are the battery makers? So still up yeah. for debate. I think that's going to be a, an interesting story. Very interesting story. Okay, moving on. And obviously, we talked about the US there. Probably worthwhile just talking about um, President Biden's infrastructure plan, huge stimulus plan that he announced. And I think it was quite positive in terms of investment in EV infrastructure, which obviously will be vital to the EV sector getting underway in the US successfully. And also, there was quite a substantial investment in renewables there, but again, quite lacking in details on the sort of raw material side of the equation. And it just sort of yeah. seems to be a 
a recurring theme with with governments that they're happy to talk about downstream, but but not so happy to invest or or talk about upstream. Yeah, well, this is a potential uh, huge investment by the US. It will dwarf what Europe done to, uh, since twenty seventeen, or what China have done. It could be, you know this could catapult the US. You know, US has basically been lacking for a number of years in. Uh, the EV, other than you know what Tesla have done, but uh, as a nation, uh, uh, lag behind in the EV development. So this, you know, I think you have written that 174 billion uh, possible funding available for EV initiatives. That's huge. Yeah, it's dwarfing what Europe. I think Europe cumulative is like 60 billion, which is still a lot of money. But uh, it's really going to catapult the US industry. Again, yeah, it's mostly focused on EV, the final end product, not the where the raw materials are going to come from. You know, they're not that excited about us you know it's not that excited about mining and it's going to be very hard to push through we've seen it already with some of the other lithium projects there that have or will be coming online shortly and you know it's very difficult to secure lining mining permits and, and make everybody happy so that's not the nice I, mean, I think to some extent i think the us will benefit from the fact that they are bordered with Canada, and it is obviously Canada's got a fantastic resource inventory and it is easy to to start up new mining projects in Canada much easier than it's proven to be in the US. So I think the US does have an advantage there if they look at it as a as a North American integrated plan rather than a, a US plan. Yeah, I think so. Looks like Canada want to protect their interests a little bit though. Um, so it's not going to be US operation in Canada that, that they're going to hold uh, control as part of that supply, right? So it'll be a yeah. bit yeah. of a political issue, obviously, but... Uh, you know, Mexico also has uh, lithium resources, and uh, so the whole area is abundant. You know, but for security, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, mineral security, I'm sure they'd like to secure it at home, but um, it'd be difficult to see them ramp up to. You know, the Elon wants three terawatts by uh, worth of material by uh, 2030, which is yeah, you know, are they going to get that from the U.S.? Probably see that happening. <laughs> uh, whatever. I think you're going to double down on be. that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll see on that one. Okay, I suppose just to. In terms of what I want to talk about, just to, to flag capital raisings in the raw material space, headline numbers, very, very positive in the first quarter. I think we raised more money in the first quarter than we did in the whole of 2019 and 2020 put together, which on the face of it, very, very positive. However, completely dwarfed by the amount of money raised for the downstream. So uh, I think we raised uh, something like $21.4 billion for the EV space in the first quarter of the year, which is something like, I think, three or four times what we raised in the raw material space. And while the, the downstream continues to outspend the upstream at that pace, uh, I think uh, we continue with our supply-demand imbalance issue. Yeah, nobody wants to talk about that. It's only all the uh, downstream applications uh, so um, they're more exciting that's what sells and that's what's putting momentum behind anybody who wants to put us back together you know so yeah. uh, so i mean you know for, from the point of view of the raw materials i, I i'm still you know, very very positive because while we have this supply demand gap we are just storing up higher prices for a later date and the later day is coming i mean i think lithium carbonate spot prices in china are up over 100% in the last six months. And what's the chances they could go higher? I, I genuinely believe that they will go substantially higher in this cycle. So 
while we have this massive demand event coming through and very, very little supply response, yeah. I think prices will go materially higher. Yeah, yeah. What's the, you know, what's the sweet spot? What's the uh, the numbers uh, required for the uh, existing uh, lithium carbonate producers to expand capacity? Are they, you know, they're getting a nice price well, I, right now. So. I, yeah, I mean, I think the other issue with lithium is that the spot market in lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide is a relatively small component of the industry. The bulk of the industry is still tied up in long-term contracts and annual contracts. And, and as in the 2015-2017 cycle, it's going to take a while. So, uh, I mean, I think SQM and LG signed that agreement at the back end of, of last year. You know, the annual contract negotiations tend to run on a calendar year or Japanese financial year basis. So given the amount of increase we've seen in six months, it'll probably be the first quarter of 2022 before we actually see material price increases coming through for the larger producers, certainly the Western world producers. I mean, I think the Chinese producers are more exposed to the spot market, but certainly yeah. Western world producers. So I, I think it's going to take a while before certainly the brine producers in Latin America are receiving the benefit of the higher prices. And, and for that reason, it's going to take a while before, you know, higher material prices filter through the industry. Yeah, and then it's, the automaker is going to wake up, right? And yeah. uh, you want to either move uh, upstream and, and invest. In, well, I think we saw, didn't Posco Chemical invest in a mine in Argentina last year, maybe, uh, with the... Posco has a, I mean, it's Posco, the parent company, I think Posco has a long running interest in, in Argentinian brine projects. Yeah. All right. But uh, I mean, really among the battery makers, I would say CATL is the only battery maker that's actively exploring upstream. And then among the OEMs, while they are looking to lock up volume, this yep. stage, we're not really seeing the sort of investment in, in supply that we need. And I think it's going to come around to bite them on the backside when uh, when prices start to rise. Tesla are in the board advisors for that uh, lithium mine up in Canada now. Is that, uh, is that right? I know they're board advisors for the Goro project in New Caledonia. So right. they've come on for that. That's a project restart. That project used to be owned by Vale. But given Elon Musk's comments about sustainability at the battery day, I was quite surprised to see them come in on a laterite nickel project because they're not the most environmentally clean projects in the world ever, should we say? Yeah, maybe they'll figure it out. Okay, I think that's a, a reasonable summary of uh, what happened in March at the beginning of April. So I will yep. say to Cormac, thank you very much indeed for your time and I hope you can join us next month. Cheers. Thanks, Matthew. Appreciate it. Yep. Happy to do so. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Moving on to our interview now. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Rodney Hooper from RK Equity, which provides proprietary research and capital markets advice to battery materials companies. Rodney is a longtime expert who's written extensively on lithium stocks in the sector. And he's also co-host of the Lithium Iron Rocks podcast and the Rock Stock channel. Welcome to Recharge, Rodney. Thanks very much, Matt. Good to be here. Excellent. So it's been a very interesting six months, I think we could say, in the battery materials space. And we've seen quite a substantial move in prices 
over the whole of the battery materials complex during that time, with Chinese lithium carbonate prices in particular up around 70%. I suppose the big question is how much more do you think that battery materials prices can rise from here and over what sort of time frame? So if we just uh, stick to the point that you just made about uh, lithium carbonate, I think, Matt, we said for some time that with a marginal amount of oversupply, we saw a lot of pressure in the lithium pricing segment and the chemical segment. And I think if you look at China where they run it tight, when prices are falling, they don't like to hold on to inventory and they dump. When prices are rising, they hold back a bit. And that's what we're seeing now. So in our opinion, Given that EV uh, sales are back on track, we think that we're in structural deficit from next year. We'll be seeing already pressures this year. So it's going to be very difficult. I see you know, we've got other questions to chat about investment into the sector, but it's going to be very difficult to suddenly catch up on battery quality material on a 20, 25% plus compounded growth rate for supply to catch up to demand. So I think that um, prices will elevate until we see enough incentive for new projects to come online and for supply to catch up. They're going to be delayed. So we could see some elevated pricing for a period of time, and then we should see new supply coming in in the future. So I expect that near term, we, we could see an increase, a continued increase in prices, and then Later on, it should stabilize, but because supply is going to constantly try and catch up to demand, I expect incentive pricing, and let's call that on carbonate and on hydroxide, 13,000, 14,000, possibly more per ton. Okay, so you don't think that we're quite yet above the level that's needed to uh, stimulate significant investment in new supply? So I think the um, the CIF uh, Asia prices are not there. They're sort of between 11 and 12 and a half. That's not there. Obviously, contract pricing is different. Um, the China spot price, you know, is already at 15 in carbonate. It's a bit lower in hydroxide. But I think if you if you want to look at projects and be realistic, and again, we'll discuss this about how long it takes to construct, commission and ramp and really get things going. I think that. There are enough half-decent projects that'll get, uh, you know, green-lighted at, you know, a consistent 13,000, 14,000 a ton across the board. Okay. Okay. I mean, you've sort of alluded to it here or, or tried to avoid mentioning it, but one of the issues that we as battery material specialists are most struggling with at the moment is, is new supply. And for me, why OEMs aren't being more proactive with funding raw material supply. So, why do you think that is the case? So I think historically the problem was, Matt, a lot of uh, OEMs and, and some household names that, that people would recognize were dismissive of EVs. They thought it was a sideshow. They said consumers didn't want, et cetera. So they envisaged sort of 1% to 3% EV penetration, and that would be it, in which case they felt that the sourcing of the raw materials and, and it's simply right up to the point of cell supply to go into modules and packs could be outsourced. So you simply just did your contract with cell suppliers and they would take care of the rest. That's of course now changing, but ultimately I don't think you know, OEMs feel that um, raw material supply chains are their concern. 
You know, they believe that uh, mass production and refinements around cutting costs and um, and getting product to market is where they focus on. I think that is likely to change because you are going to see a crowding out, you know, and you're competing against people like Tesla who only produce electric vehicles, in which case raw materials and cell supply is everything. Otherwise, they don't have a product to sell. So. We have noticed that a number of OEMs have created in-house procurement teams. So at some point in time, are likely to take raw materials more seriously. And in order to, you know, if projects can't get up and running, they will need to help fund. But, you know, to the extent that you rely on incumbents, they require less funding. Okay, that's an interesting perspective. So... I guess one of the key issues in the sector at the moment is that we've seen this renewed focus on environmental sustainability. And I think to some extent that's driven by the OEMs. You deal with a lot of development companies in your work. How are you seeing that being reflected in the industry? So that's an interesting question, Matt, because at the moment, when you speak to the various participants in the industry, OEMs and downstream customers are not prepared to pay a premium for lower carbon products because they are not being penalized yet for buying lower carbon products. Now, that will change. And as Wayne Gretzky always says, you need to ski to where the puck's going to be, not skate to where the puck's going to be, not where it is. And I do think that we are moving towards a $100 a ton carbon tax world. So it will matter. But at the moment, there's quite a lot of what I would inverted commas call greenwashing. And there are companies focusing on the inevitable, which will be in a world where you will be penalized and it will matter. But right now, believe it or not, you do not get a premium for that product. So it's more a case of forward thinking companies actually looking to um, compete on a price basis and also have a, a lower more environmentally sustainable and a lower carbon footprint. So your business focuses a a lot on North America. And obviously, one of the key factors that we're seeing in, in the market at the moment is localization of battery supply chains. At the end of the day, do you think that North America has got enough raw materials to supply its own battery demand? Yeah, I mean, that is somewhat of a loaded question, I guess, because there are some unconventional, let's call it new processing techniques that are being promoted in North America outside of the conventional hard rock or brine route for for lithium. Um, You know, we spoke about it before, you know, our our client is Talon. They are doing um, a high-grade nickel sulfide project in Minnesota. So on a lithium perspective, we think that Canada offers enormous potential It's got a lot of cheap, clean electricity available. And we consider a lot of those deposits to have very clean ore bodies and um, a lot of potential to produce decent uh, quality and and grade spodumin concentrate to feed into the North American market. So we think Canada, it's had some stops and starts, but it's got those have largely been as a result of, uh, let's call it, issues around financial and balance sheet structures. We think that there are new deposits coming through. And then, of course, Piedmont, et cetera, with you know, conventional hard rock in, in the US. 
Bottom line, we think that the demand's going to surprise on the upside, but we do think that North America has the potential to certainly produce two to 400,000 tons of battery-grade material on its own by 2030, which would go some way to covering you know, its demand, we think, quite a lot. But timelines will always matter, and unconventional processing routes may well help, but likely to be in the second half of the 2020s, you know, at best, for some of them. I think it's quite interesting that so much of the resource potential of North America is sort of concentrated in that area, which has traditionally been a major car producing area, sort of around Detroit and everything. So, you know, you've got access to lithium, you've got access potentially to nickel, to cobalt, and certainly to graphite in that very, very tight geographical area. Yes, I mean, uh, you know, Renuvo Mon looking at the first all-electric mine and to produce a, a zero-carbon product. So we think, you know, that there are good relations. You know, we've seen discussions between the US and Canada, and we think combined, we think if Canada's you know, potential is properly unlocked and they have very supportive government and looking at it, especially, you know, as well in Alberta with, you know, with uh, DLE and so on as oil falls away. So we, we, we do think that there's great potential, you know, in both. We'll, we'll see in the States, it can be trickier, you know, having to get permits, et cetera, on state land rather than on private land in, in certain jurisdictions. But Canada has a lot of raw material potential and, uh, you know, in certain instances, the US as well. So we think that uh, North America is going to be a big market, and we think to, to a large extent it can have localized supply. Which materials do you see in a North American context, the, the biggest sort of near-term supply and demand imbalance? And what are the sort of more exciting, I suppose, early movers in the space that you would flag? Matt, you probably agree if you, if you think about what's happening across the EV and lithium-ion battery space you, you've got demand for most commodities you know running at uh, well over 20 percent which is sort of unprecedented so there's a lot to be excited about we think you know it will depend you know the US is going to likely go the high nickel cathode route if you look at all the very heavy vehicles that need and you know demand for uh, long range and fast charging so all the materials that go along with that and one of the other ones that uh, we're thinking about now is in titanium if you look at all the space and aerospace applications and 3d printing lowering the cost given its you know phenomenal uh, characteristics of great strength and lightweight and uh, the new invention of uh, 3d printing that that also has a very, a very potentially a very interesting future. Um, we've seen a bit on the rare earth side, but you can probably give you know more commentary on that. But um, I was pretty bullish with all of the new EV model launches in the US as it was, and now you know the talk is it's even possible that Biden's going to push through ten thousand dollar subsidies at point of sale and sort of unlimited no cap like the previous 200,000 to get the federal credit you know so that could really stimulate demand and uh, you know and push 
all the materials strongly. Okay, so we've seen a, a fair amount of capital flow into the space over the past six months, in, in fact, um, more than in the whole of 2020 at the beginning of this year. You've kind of answered this question already, but do you think it's going to be enough to underpin the expected demand? I would say outright no, because what, what you're seeing a lot of it is, is a lot of the capital raises and the developing companies was really simply to move along and progress where they are already. It isn't for development stage. And a lot of the 4.8 to 5 billion that's been raised, for example, in the lithium market, you know, has gone to the major players. You've got SQM raising a little over a billion and you saw um, Albemarle step in as well and raise substantially. So they've got their hands full with their own brownfield projects and shareholders, maybe that's changed, but 18 months ago, the Albemarle shareholders were very, very clear that they wanted to see um, more free cash flow and, you know, return to shareholders. If you think about it, you know, I mean, it, you know, it, it's, we've adjusted our demand figures. I mean, I thought they were quite high. We were around or just under a million for lithium in 2025 and 3 million tons for 2030. And I thought, oh, you know, that feels high. And then, you know, UBS came out and I think they're at 4.4 billion. So if you can get the cost of per kilowatt hour at the battery pack level at 60 to $80 per kilowatt hour, Matt, you can basically electrify everything, which means the demand's going to be unbelievable. And we know as a sort of rough rule of thumb, you're looking at seven years to, you know, fully construct, develop, qualify, you know, and, and build a new lithium project. So the door's almost closed on 2025. For now, you know, we have to look forward to 2030 to see if you can, you know, make that. But now the question is, historically, what you could do, you know, people say lithium isn't rare. You could go out and find various espodumin or it can be, obviously, others. It doesn't have to be just spodumin, be lipidolite, et cetera. But you could go out and find hard rock deposits and simply ship that material to China who can get permitted and built in a year. You know, it's quite exceptional and then sort of push supply up. But the world we're moving to, people are wanting localized and low-carbon supply chains. So that's going to make it even harder. So what is the capital requirement? You know, production last year was... It's called a 300, 350,000 uh, tons. Um, and of that, you know, probably around 200,000 tons of battery grade. How do you go from there to 3 million? Well, you need tens of billions of, of capital injected, and, and that's going to be really tough. Yeah. So I think one of the key issues that concerns me at the moment is that a lot of the new projects we hear about seem to rely on new technologies. There is a price for new technologies. Do you think that investors in the market are correctly pricing the risk of these projects? I guess one could ask if they're correctly pricing the risk of any project. But um, I think that that new technology has a role to play for sure. I don't think, you know, surely you know, we've, we're smart enough that we can move and evolve to a world that uh, where new technologies add and contribute to something that's as stringent as what battery quality requires. I think the reality matters on any project, you've really got to think about, you know, even brownfield expansion projects of incumbents where most of the skills have sat, they take longer 
to construct. They could possibly have cost overruns. We've seen that at Quinana and elsewhere. And in order to, you know, ramp and so on, it can take time. So you've got to build that into your pricing. You know, are you correctly pricing risk when even the well-established and well-known flow sheets take longer and cost more? And I think one guiding you know, principle that, in, that investors could look at is, you know, the more unconventional the uh, technology is, the more one would want to see pilot and demonstration and metallurgical test work. You want to see it more rigorous. And if you're not seeing that, then you need to, you know, you need to consider how you're pricing it. I think that's a very important point. And I mean, just leading on from that, you write about and you model a lot of new battery materials projects. What are the major things that investors should look out for when they're valuing a battery materials development project? That's a great question, Matt, because a lot of people seem to take a, a very crude view and just look at resource and, and, and grade, and, and there's so much more to it. So the key things I think people need to look out for is you know, assuming that your project reaches, you know, the qualification and grades that you're hoping it will, who is going to be the offtake partner? And is that offtake partner bankable? Because if they aren't, then you as shareholders are going to have to fund the development of that project. And that, you know, can be massive dilution in projects that we're looking at. The second thing is where are you going to sell it? Because one of the things I see that's most commonly and incorrectly modeled is the expected price that you're going to receive. Because if you are going to sell a product, product, for example, lithium carbonate into China, if you do your homework and you look at what the net pricing is that Oricobre receives and SQM receives, you've got to take off VAT, you've got to take off import duties, you've got to take off transport and insurance, and then in the case of Argentina, there's an export tax. So what is the real free on board price that your project's going to receive when you think that the spot price in China is one thing? It often isn't. And, and there's, a, there's a huge difference in that. And then probably finally, just to keep the list short enough, is you've also got to look at a couple of things. The one is permitting, which is always key. Are you looking to build on state land or are you looking to build on private land? And how much resistance are you going to face? in terms of you know, your, your project that you're backing is going to get up and running and be built? And will, is there an opportunity for a state or soft government grants or financial assistance? Will that matter? And uh, you know, so how will, your, how will your funding structures work and you know, who's going to back it? Because again, if you take unbankable offtake partners you're going to struggle to get reasonably priced debt, which is always key in, in development companies. Okay, that's fascinating. Some really interesting perspectives there. So just to close up, we've talked about the opportunity, a lot of price upside in the sector. What do you see as the biggest risks for investors in the battery material space at the moment? You know, new technology risk. We take a particular view and our thesis is that lithium-ion batteries can get the job done. They can scale and give the performance and the cost that's needed, but that's always going to be a risk in the, you know, in the space is if something can 
replace or actually uh, you know substitute or, or, or cause a, a major issue to uh, the current lithium-ion thesis, but a risk kind of going back to what to look up, to look at when investors are valuing and, and looking is the biggest risk certainly in the lithium space. A lot of the other battery commodities are, are more sort of commoditized inverted commas is a lot of the modeling and a, a lot of the assumptions are around, you know, how various projects will all ramp up and hit and reach qualification and battery spec in a short space of time. That's not what history suggests. And if your, your project that you're backing does not meet battery qualification, where, what, what is going to happen to the product, off-spec product that they do make? And what's that going to mean? Because it, it can and it has meant complete devastation to the company that's producing it. I think that's a very important point that perhaps a lot of people don't pick up on in the sector, the difference between battery grade and non-battery grade products. And we've seen a number of examples of companies, battery development companies over the, next, over the last couple of years who haven't managed to reach battery grade very quickly. And that's really impacted their ability to generate revenues. And I think what's more important, you know, Matt, is, is that you've seen the scale of what we're talking about. You know, it's 300 to 350,000 tons last year going to a demand of 3 million. So it's one thing for there to be reprocessing capacity, although you're not going to get, you're not going to earn the margin by missing, you know, qualification. The guy who takes your material and reprocesses it, you know, will to some extent. but. As the market grows, you know, really extensively, reprocessing capacity is, is not going to keep pace with all the unqualified material, I think, that's going to pile up in this market, which, going to, which means it's unavoidable. There are going to be casualties, for sure. Okay. That's a fascinating perspective. Rodney Hooper from RK Equity, thanks very much indeed for your time. Thanks very much for having me on, Matt. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for April. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>